Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried, the, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who, has, who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would remain, would, would, would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of God. Uh, please join me as we pray together for God's word. Uh, Father, thank you. Uh, thank you that you speak to us, uh, that you do so through your word. I pray that that would come through, and uh, not my thoughts. I pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds uh, to receive from you, uh, and that we would live a gospel-transformed life, lives wherever you've placed us. Um, this we pray in your name and for our good. Amen. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, I think 10 years ago, uh, there was a pastor who preached a series um, in 1 Corinthians, and he titled the series, Christians Gone Wild. Um, Christians Gone Wild. And I think that was a catchy title that represents uh, what's going on in the church in, in Corinth. Uh, so if you haven't been with us, uh, you'd, um, you'd have missed uh, some of the story and some of the things that were happening uh, at Christ Church Corinth. Uh, lots of wild stuff uh, was happening. And Paul uh, is writing to this church uh, to encourage them uh, to repent, to remind them of the gospel uh, and tell them, uh, what a Christian life uh, would look like. Uh, remember, there was infighting within the church. Uh, some who said, we favor this guy, uh, this preacher, and some saying, we favor that other preacher. Christians were sending each other to court and arguing amongst each other over money. 
uh, there was lots of uh, disputes. Uh, the Christians, Christian men in particular, saw nothing wrong with uh, being Christian, going off to your Bible study, uh, and then visiting a temple uh, uh, prostitute. Uh, in, the, in their minds, this was okay. This was part of uh, the culture uh, that they lived in. And so Paul writes to them, uh, to remind them of the gospel and to remind them of how the gospel impacts their life and their, uh, their culture. I think for me, uh, if I were to summarize the message of 1 Corinthians, uh, these two words, counterculture, uh, would be uh, my summary of, uh, of, uh, of, the, of the letter. Counterculture, because in this, uh, st- in, in this letter, Paul encourages these Christians to reflect on their culture and how it's impacted their view of uh, life in general, uh, and how the gospel story uh, speaks into uh, into that um, into their situation. Uh, no doubt, this uh, Christians had many issues, uh, but I think the one area of our lives where we are tempted to be more like the culture, uh, and where they were more tempted to be uh, like the culture, would be the area of, of sex and sexuality. Listen to what a commentator says about. Uh, the, the issues in Corinth, he says that each of the community problems uh, Paul needed to address grew out of the Corinthians' inability to let the gospel message fully reshape their gentile Greco-Roman lives, uh, whether because they misunderstood that message or because they rejected it um, outright. Uh, so they were tempted to live according to the culture because they either didn't understand the gospel or didn't understand how it impacted um, their lives. Uh, so just as we get into our passage, I want to give you uh, a summary point of what Paul is saying uh, in these few verses, and then I'm going to explain it in under four headings. So the summary uh, goes like this, uh, that unlike our culture, um, the gospel story elevates sex to a high standard, uh, but it never makes it the ultimate thing. Uh, let me say that again. The gospel, unlike our culture, the Christian story elevates sex uh, to a high standard, uh, but it never makes it the ultimate uh, thing. And so we're going to break that statement uh, into four uh, sections. One, uh, we're going to look at our culture's low view of sex. Uh, then two, we're going to look at uh, briefly what the Christian story is. Uh, and we do that briefly because we've already dealt with that uh, in chapter one. Uh, then thirdly, we want to see how the Christian story uh, elevates sex to a high standard. Uh, and lastly, uh, we're going to remember that the Christian story uh, reminds us uh, that sex is not the ultimate uh, thing. Uh, so firstly, our culture's view of, uh, of sex. And I think if you were to walk around Corinth, um, you'd find two different types of people. Um, on the one hand, you had these people who, uh, who lived large, uh, who said, well, sex is just a, an appetite that you and I have uh, that we, uh, we can just fulfill. Uh, and then on the other hand, you had these super spiritual people uh, who uh, considered sex as a dirty, as a dirty thing. Uh, so those two people, I think we would find them uh, also right here in, in Jobek. Uh, on the one hand, uh, people who uh, look at sex and say, well, it's just an appetite. Uh, just like you have an appetite for food, uh, you have a desire to, uh, for sex. Uh, so see to it that you satisfy it uh, in any way that you, uh, that you please, as long as uh, nobody gets hurt. Um, I still remember three years ago or so, um, we, so we ran this uh, campus ministry on, cam- on, uh, on 
the Midland Graduate Institute, also known now as the Pearson Institute. Uh, so our student ministry does a lot of topics, uh, and every now and again we do a topic that is at the heart of students, uh, the topic of sex. Um, it's always packed in the, um, the hall as we discuss sex. Uh, you have these guys coming in. Uh, I remember walking up to these two ladies, uh, inviting them to, to come through to our meeting, and they said, whoa, we don't want to go to church because we know what you're going to say. Uh, you're going to tell us. Uh, not to have it, and we're going to start feeling guilty um, away with you. We don't want anything to do with you. Um, and then on the, on the very same evening, as we were discussing the topic of uh, sex, one of the boys raised his hand uh, with a grin on his face, uh, uh, that naughty grin, and said, but Brad Dave, tell me something. Um, if you are hungry, what do you do? <laughs> and obviously I said, you eat. And then he said in Pedi, of course, yeah, you eat. Uh, also, if you, that translated meaning, if you are hungry, if you have a sexual appetite, then just eat. Uh, just, um, um, just have sex. And I think this motto, uh, that this guy, uh, quoted to me is quite similar to what, uh, the Corinthians were saying. Have a look with me. Uh, Roden looked at this a couple of weeks ago. At chapter 6, verse 13. This was the prevailing thought in uh, Corinth. Chapter 6, uh, verse 13, Paul is quoting a known saying, and he says that food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for, for food. Uh, so that was the saying, uh, sex is just an appetite, just fulfill it, uh, just live it up uh, and uh, do whatever you, uh, you please. Uh, just like uh, Josie, these guys believed that uh, sex was some kind of contact spot, um, you play around in the field for a couple of minutes. Uh, there's uh, interactions. Um, then we all end the game and we shake hands and say thank you uh, for playing with me. And off we go uh, to our different places. No, as long as nobody gets hurt, uh, that's fine. It's just a bunch of grown-ups uh, having grown-up fun. But um, you and I do know this. Our country knows this more than anybody, that sex isn't just a physical thing. Uh, that there's more to it uh, than just the physical. And in fact, we are in uproar as a, as a society when somebody violates uh, a young girl um, or a young woman because we recognize that this is not just a contact spot. It's not like you tackle someone on the field, they just cried. No, there's, it's deeper than that. It's more than just uh, the physical. And we're going to see Paul explaining to these um, Christians uh, the biblical and the gospel view uh, of sex. So there we have it. That's why in chapter 6, Paul says to them, flee sexual immorality because it's not just a physical thing. It's not just an appetite uh, that you fulfill. Uh, the second one is that we often see sex as dirty. Um, and I think that's what's happening here uh, with, the, with the letter that this guy sent to Paul, this Corinthian uh, Christians. Have a look at verse chapter 7, verse 1. This was perhaps what they were thinking. Uh, as Paul warns them against sexual immorality, they had a lot of things going on in their heads, and they wrote uh, to Paul concerning uh, those matters. So we're listening to one end of the conversation because we don't know what they were actually thinking. Verse 1, chapter 7. Now concerning the matters which you wrote, this is what they wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations uh, with a woman. Uh, so this is what they wrote to Paul. We need clarity on this matter. When you talk about sexual immorality, Paul, just explain to us what you mean 
uh, by that. Um, you see, it, what, what is happening here it, in Corinth is that Paul had obviously planted this church. Uh, he had spent a year, about a year and a half there, uh, planting this church, working uh, hard, and people committed their lives to Jesus, uh, but they were still young uh, Christians, and so uh, he left them, and then he made what they call a painful visit uh, to them, uh, where he addressed a, a few things. Now, they wrote him a letter, a very strong email, uh, to challenge some of the things, or to uh, find clarity uh, on some of the things that he, uh, he wrote uh, concerning um, their lives and concerning their Christian lives. I, I always like to imagine the Bible uh, and what's happening. I always uh, want to imagine a group of angry men sitting together and saying, we don't know what Muruti Paul was saying uh, when he says those things about sexual immorality. So they get together, uh, form a committee, and say, we want to send a strong email to, to Paul. Uh, and they type out the email, dear Paul, um, we, we hope that this email finds you well. Um, <laughs> that's normally, by the way, code uh, for we are about to just throw you with a lot of stuff. We hope you're ready for that. Um, we have a couple of issues that we are concerned about. Uh, and matters of clarity that you wanted your correspondence on. That's, again, another code for saying, listen, what you said was very confusing. Uh, just come, come and explain yourself. Uh, and then the end of the, uh, the email with uh, looking forward to your uh, response on this matter, kind regards, um, the Corinthian church. Uh, looking forward to your uh, correspondence on this matter means you better answer that email quite fast, or else we'll remain angry. So anyway, they send... Paul, this, uh, this, um, this message, and one of the things that they wrote is quite a weird saying, um, so we don't understand what they were meaning when they said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, commentators say that, the, if you notice there, uh, in verse 1, the word that is used there is touch. Uh, it is, so it would, uh, write, it would read as follows in Greek, it is good for a man not to have, not to touch a woman. And commentator says that in Corinthian culture, uh, they believed that touching a woman was um, having sex with a woman for pleasure, um, just mere pleasure. And for them, that was inconceivable uh, because a woman was, uh, your wife was a sacred person. Uh, you only had sex with her for procreation to have uh, kids. Um, and you didn't touch her for sexual pleasure. Uh, I did say to the morning congregation, can I just make a confession? Like, I really feel awkward uh, talking about sex, and there's people who are my mom's age in this congregation. <laughs> but this is the word of the Lord, and we, we're just going to plunge on and, uh, and talk about sex. Anyway, if I was white, I think I'd be red. <laughs> Black people don't blush. So, so these guys had this uh, kind of belief that sex is dirty. You could have um, sex with other people, like prostitutes, and this is what they used to do. Uh, they viewed themselves as um, um, holy and godly people. You can have sex with anybody uh, for pleasure. You can even have it with young boys. This is what was happening in Corinth and in uh, in this culture, but they not touch your wife uh, for enjoyment or for mutual enjoyment. In fact, this kind of thinking was so pervasive in the 
early church that a, a few of our church fathers wrote this uh, concerning sex. Uh, in 100 BC, a guy called Justin Mata uh, wrote, uh, wrote this. He said that the end we seek in marriage is not pleasure, but the begetting of lawful children. Uh, so sex uh, in marriage is not about pleasure. Um, all we're concerned about is uh, having kids. Uh, we Christians marry only to reproduce children. Another saint, another uh, uh, father called Jerome, Saint Jerome, um, wrote around 400 BC, and this is what he says. He says, do you imagine that we approve of any sexual intercourse except for the procreation of children? He who is too passionate a lover to his own wife is an adulterer. Uh, so this is the kind of thinking now uh, in this world. Uh, in 12th century, another guy wrote um, and said that uh, whenever married couples have sex, the Holy Spirit leaves the room. So God is not involved in their sex, uh, is dirty. It is unheard of to, to have sex uh, with your wife. So when Paul says to them, flee immorality, they're thinking to themselves, well, surely it is immoral uh, to continue uh, with um, uh, having intercourse uh, without procreation in mind. And they went outside uh, of the marriage relationship uh, to go um, out there and touch um, whoever they, uh, they did. Uh, so Paul, um, so those are the two kind of thinkings uh, that we, we had in Corinthian culture. And I think some of them are pervasive in our own culture. Um, I grew up in a place where sex was taboo. That's why I find it awkward to talk about it from up front. Uh, you don't talk about it uh, at all. Uh, we all pretend like it doesn't um, exist. Um, the only sex talk you get as a boy growing up where I grew up is around the age of 18. Um, and it's not really a sex talk. It's like when you want to go out with your mates, you're like, Mama, I'm going out. Uh, we Friends of ours are going to... Uh, this this party, this house party. Your mom will say at that point, uh, will upload, will download all the information that you need at that moment, and will say, "Do not bring home a pregnant child here." That is the end of it. How are you gonna do it? We don't know what happens, <laughs> but that is the sum total of the sex talk. Don't bring home uh, a pregnant child, and we had to fill in the uh, the missing dots there, fit them in. And can you just imagine growing up in that world that when you become a Christian, um, you don't view sex in the way that God uh, views it. Uh, you view it as something that is dirty, that we don't um, talk about it. But the Christian story, which is our second point, uh, we're going to look at what the Christian story is. And then our third point, we're going to look at how the Christian story changes our way of thinking. So number one, our low view of sex, on the one hand, it's pleasure. On the other hand, uh, it, is, uh, it is dirty. Uh, the Christian story, uh, which we saw in uh, chapter two, is that God has created, our, or rather chapter one, uh, and across the, the, the Bible, is that God creates our world, and he created very good. Uh, it is good, uh, he says repeatedly uh, in chapters one and two. Uh, of Genesis, and then he creates sex um, as a good thing. Um, so that's the part of the story that it was created by God uh, and not by human beings. There's a common misunderstanding uh, that the fruit in the middle of the garden somehow had something to do uh, with sex. Um, again, that reinforces the stereotype uh, that sex is not something ordained uh, by God. 
Um, so the Bible teaches that it is ordained by God, but in chapter 3 of Genesis, you and I rejected God and God's rule over our lives. And because of that, we uh, destroyed life as it was meant to be. Uh, our world was bent out of shape. Sex was bent um, out, of, out of shape. Uh, but God looks at us in our mess and in our brokenness, and he steps into the scene uh, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus lives a perfect life. Uh, he restores sexual sinners uh, to himself. And ultimately, he uh, surrenders his life on a cross on a piece of wood and dies for sinful people to redeem them into a relationship with, him, with himself. So that is what we see uh, in the Bible, that the God who created it all uh, left his glory uh, to become like one of us and to die uh, for us. Um, instead of holding on to his rights as God, he let them go uh, for our sake uh, and for our good. But not only uh, is the Christian message of the cross um, the way into the Christian community, so the cross saves us, it brings us into a relationship with God, but one of the things that the cross does is that it gives us a model of the new life. Uh, so when we look at Jesus, uh, we, are, we are compelled every now and again uh, to consider how you and I live our lives. Uh, Paul says that the cross is the wisdom, the wisdom of God. Uh, Paul says that the cross is the thing that reshapes our understanding of the world, uh, such that he chooses in chapter 1 and 2 to talk about the centrality of the cross in the Christian life. Why does he do that? Well, Paul normally does this thing where he tells us theology, uh, the cross of Jesus, and when he tells us how that plays itself out in our lives. Uh, so the cross of Jesus is in chapter 1, uh, has an impact on how these people view themselves when there's matters of dispute about finances. Uh, if you are a Christian, if you have a relationship with, um, with God, Paul says, well, just like your, your Savior was defrauded on that cross, you yourself, why don't you choose uh, to be defrauded? Why do you insist on taking your Christian brother to court? apply the message of the cross to your life. When they have factions and uh, favorite preachers, Paul reminds them that actually the message is what's important and not so much uh, those preachers. Uh, in fact, Paul says, I didn't come with eloquence, but I came pre preaching the cross. Uh, so the message and the power is not in the, the guy who's preaching, but in the message um, of the cross. Uh, and in a weird way, but in the most profound way, that Christian story of the cross impacts how you and I think about sex. Have you ever thought of that? That the cross challenges and uh, reshapes how you and I think about sex. Listen to what comment, one commentator says, um, that identifying Christ crucified as wisdom sets aside all human wisdom and self-confidence and points us towards the way of the cross as our model for life. Uh, so the way of the cross becomes the model for a Christian living. Uh, and with, with that uh, in view, the Christian story elevates sex um, to a high standard. It's no longer about satisfying your own appetite. It's no longer a dirty thing, but the Christian story gives it um, a picture that is much more beautiful than that, that it is a cement that cements and keeps together relationships uh, between a man and a woman, and it is a lifelong beautiful celebration of, of that union.
So that is what sex is about. It's about service to one another rather than getting from uh, the other person. Have a look at uh, verse 2 to 3 with me. <clears throat> By the way, in point 3, the Christian story elevates sex uh, to a high standard. Verse 2, Paul responds to the Christians, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Uh, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife um, to the husband. To the husband. Notice there that a theology of the cross playing itself out uh, in marriage. And to this we should shout if you are married, amen, brother. Um, Paul says, again, this is awkward, married couples, if you are married, please serve one another by having sex with each other. Have regular sex in service um, to one another. That is what Paul uh, would say, that they ought to serve one another, um, even as Christ uh, served them. One of the privileges of being a Christian minister is seeing two people coming together in marriage, uh, and I've done a couple of weddings. Uh, and I love the, the part in our prayer book where everyone is seated. We've gathered here uh, to celebrate the union of these two. Uh, and it tells, tells us that marriage is to be held in high regard. Nobody should enter into marriage uh, carelessly or merely to satisfy human desires. Uh, marriage is given so that... Uh, Children could be, can produce uh, children, uh, God willing. Um, and the second point, which I like, it says that the natural instincts and affections given by God should be ordered in a holy and lawful relationship. That is one of the reasons for marriage. That is one of the reasons why God has created marriage. Uh, he created it uh, so that human beings uh, can experience the deepest intimacy uh, in this relationship uh, between husband uh, and wife. Uh, and because of that, uh, sex is so important. Because of that, uh, couples who are married uh, should be enjoying it and should not be denying each other uh, this privilege. Amen. You guys are not helping me. I'm, I'm a black preacher. Do you guys believe the word of the Lord? Amen, Barcelona. <laughs> In other ways, uh, it means uh, that there shouldn't be any headaches. <laughs> Amen, Mazalwani. <laughs> that we shouldn't use sex as a way to gain control over each other. I'm withholding it because you were nasty to me. I want to show you. Uh, because that is when the devil steps in uh, and complicates our marriages. Uh, but we ought to uh, be... Uh, enjoying it. And uh, now, this is one of the easiest ones to apply to our lives, isn't it? Uh, if you are married, Paul says, have regular sex. Uh, regular means different things for different people, uh, but have it on the regular because it um, cements your relationship uh, to one another. That's easy to apply. Uh, if you are a couple, um, maybe around lunchtime, just, just ask, your, ask your husband... What did you think about the sermon today? <laughs> or your wife, what did you think about the sermon today? Uh, and start that discussion. If you are a husband, I recommend this book that I saw in Martin's office. <laughs> <laughs> it is called, I've never read it, but the title says it all. It's called Sex Begins in the Kitchen. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. 
But I suspect it says to your husbands that go save your wife and wash the dishes and maybe amazing things will happen <laughs> in your life. Sex begins uh, in the kitchen. It begins when we serve one another uh, and realize that I don't have needs, uh, you don't have needs, we have a need uh, to, be, uh, to be cemented uh, together. Uh, so let's serve one another in that way. Verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Uh, Paul reminds us Christians that you guys don't belong to yourselves. Uh, when you are married, you become one unit, and you belong to each other. And now, these guys, uh, when they read the first part of that verse, for a, a wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. They would have shouted, amen. Yes, this is, this is true. I mean, duh, like, of course she doesn't own herself. Uh, because in that culture, uh, you viewed your wife as part of your property. You had houses, you had slaves, male slaves. Uh, you had your wife who was part of uh, the property. So you owned your wife pretty much. So what Paul says here as he continues uh, uh, to write Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this was revolutionary. This was countercultural because it was challenging the men and their view uh, that they could do anything with their own body because, what's, because they basically own their own body. The wife doesn't own her body, but I own my body. I think that's a thinking that's pervasive in our culture, isn't it? that we would look down on a, a wife who cheats and call her a slut, but look at a man who cheats and say, well, men are men, boys are boys. It will always be like this. And Paul is challenging that kind of thinking, even in Corinth, because uh, he's saying to them that their bodies don't belong to, to themselves. So they can't just go around sleeping with anybody that they are accountable uh, to somebody else. They can't just go around and coming, be coming home late the wife has the right to ask you, well, where were you? Where do you come from? You are not your own. So therefore, verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, Paul recognizes that they live in a broken society, but God has set a context called marriage uh, for them to... Um, to, to enjoy and to express themselves as sexual beings. If you read along, you'll see that Paul encourages those who are not married uh, that if marriage is an option, that they ought to uh, jump on that wagon if they feel like they are burning uh, because Satan will get in and tempt them. What I found interesting as I was um, preparing the talk is that verse 5 uh, when it says, do not deprive one another, it uses the same word as last week's um, word. Uh, so when Paul talks about Christians defrauding each other when it comes to money, uh, it is the same word that we see here uh, in verse 5. He says, don't defraud each other when it comes to sex um, if you are married. Have it on the regular, lest you are tempted, lest you drift away from God's ordained uh, view of marriage. Amen. You guys still with me? Um, there's an interesting book, uh, if you do read, it's called The Joined Up Life. Um, and that's a book about Christian ethics and how we 
conduct ourselves. And the author spends the first uh, part of the book defining how the cross and the resurrection changes us and makes us new humans. And then he spends the rest of the book explaining how that applies to normal life. And this is what, what he writes about marriage and about this kind of new thinking that the gospel brings about. He says that I suspect marriage becomes a school of moral formation. So marriage is a school of moral formation where men are trained that they don't have sexual needs that always deserve to be quenched. We men learn that our sexuality is the servant of a relationship, and our sexual thoughts and feelings exist to create joy in a particular other as our wives. This revolutionary concept that a marriage, not an individual, has sexual need is also what makes the abstinence of singles thinkable and livable. It also creates the realistic expectation that a man will control his sexuality when a wife is absent or unwell, and it helps some women to remember that sex is more than her libido might suggest. Quite a countercultural way of thinking uh, that, that, that sex, I don't have needs uh, so much so as that the relationship between husband and wife uh, has needs. Uh, we need each other. We need sex to uh, keep us glued together. So I don't demand it on tap. And I think as a young Christian, uh, you, you become a Christian. I became a Christian at age 14. Uh, so I was saved from a whole lot of nonsense that I could have gotten up to. But I always had these desires in me uh, for sex. And I, I just like frustrated. I want to get married because I knew that that's a place where you get it. Um, and you have this, it is a weird thinking as a young Christian or as a unmarried person, that you're just going to have sex on the regular. But that's not the case. Uh, that is not the case. Life happens, and Paul says, or rather this um, guy who writes these ethic books, uh, reflecting on the cross, says, well, sex is about service. Um, sex is not just I demand. I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting. It is about mutual service. Have a look at verse 10. If you're still tracking with me, it is um, so serious, so highly elevated that Paul would remind these Christians who wanted, some of them wanted out of their marriages, he would remind them that this is a long-standing covenant. Have a look at verse 10. Um, we're not going to read all of it. Uh, to the unmarried, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Uh, just to caution you on that, um, that might be a, a controversial topic. Uh, just to say that the Bible has a lot more to say about the topic of divorce. We're not going to dwell on that uh, this morning. But what we do want to remember is that Paul is writing to people who had a low view of marriage, uh, who could just write a certificate of divorce because they were unhappy with their wives and that was it was just fine. He's writing to people who are grappling with what it means to be a Christian. So, Paul, if he's saying uh, that we shouldn't associate ourselves with darkness, uh, what does it mean then for me uh, who's married to an unbeliever? Uh, Paul says, he leans in with his wisdom and says, well, continue uh, in that relationship. Continue in that relationship because who knows, your husband might become, your wife might become uh, a Christian uh, because of you. 
Paul elevates the standard that you and I don't have, the standard for sex. He puts it uh, in a high position. And you might be sitting there and thinking, wow, like that's awesome. Sex is elevated. Married people must have it. I'm single. Um, I guess none of this applies to me. What does this have to do uh, with me? Uh, Which brings us to our fourth and last point, which is that, yes, Paul elevates uh, and the Bible elevates sex to a high standard. But here's the thing. It never makes it the ultimate thing. Uh, The Bible never says that you are incomplete because you don't have a sexual partner. In fact, on the contrary, Paul encourages these Christians that they should think and consider singleness. I think our culture, or their culture, this was shocking. Uh, Because if you are a woman in particular, you are unmarried, uh, people looked at you weird. Uh, And I think that's still the same in our culture, isn't it? Uh, That they look at you weird, they want to hook you up. Uh, At Christmas lunch, they're going to be asking you, uh, have you been seeing anyone lately? That's the culture, isn't it? There's so much pressure. And I think sometimes in the church, sometimes I'm even uh, guilty of doing that. Hey, when are you getting married? Um, As if you, like that's the thing, that's the ultimate thing uh, that you want to do, that you're lacking if you're not married. Uh, Yet Paul would remind them that that is not the case. Marriage is not the thing that completes a person. I grew up as a Twana boy, in the Twana culture, I'm not joking. The word for an unmarried woman is lefetwa. Loosely translated, that means the one whom everyone has passed by. And that is the cultural thinking of singleness. Um, And I think it was probably worse in in those days, in the ancient uh, time when Paul was writing. In some culture up in the north, I'm not going to say which culture this is. Again, this is not a joke. When a woman is uh, dies and they haven't had any kids or they were never married, they bury them with a rat uh, to accompany um, this person into their next life. That is the tradition and that's the thinking um, around some African cultures. In the Western culture, uh, we'll see movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and that's supposed to be funny because how can you be a 40-year-old? Surely there's something twisted and wrong with you if you are 40-year-old and you're not married. Uh, again, Paul flips that on his, on his head. Have a look at verse 6 to 8. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I, I myself am. So he says, I wish all of you were like me. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single. So Paul says, consider singleness as an option, because that is good. You are complete. Look at me, Paul says. I'm a complete man sharing the gospel, and I get to share the gospel more because I'm a single person. Look at Jesus. He was single, and he was a complete person. Uh, You might be sitting there and saying, well, David, you don't understand my loneliness as a single person. Uh, Listen to these words by um, a Christian writer. He says that in Christian thought, our loneliness isn't finally met in marriage, but in our enjoyment of Christ the groom and through his community. 
When single people believe this community can meet their meet loneliness, they begin to conduct symphony of satisfying friendships. Marriage is no longer the sole solution. Uh, so you can, there is an option for you to be in community. Uh, yes, you may not experience, humanly speaking, uh, this intimacy, but you can taste something of uh, this human intimacy uh, through your relationship uh, to Jesus uh, through uh, his church. Uh, so it is possible uh, to not be lonely, uh, but to gather around yourself a group of others uh, who are going to uh, fulfill that void. Uh, that is God's grace uh, to us and to you. Um, and you can look forward, as the Bible tells us. The Bible never speaks of sex as the arrival. It never says you've arrived. It always says that sex points to an ultimate reality, and that is God's relationship with his people. That is what we look forward to. That is what would encourage single people to even conceive of uh, being uh, holy and pure in this broken society. Uh, humanity in the presence of God, another, another writer says, uh, humanity in the presence of God will know a community in which the fidelity of love which marriage makes possible will be extended beyond the limits of marriage. Meaning that one day when we are with him in glory, which is what we're looking forward to, uh, we will experience the fullness of uh, being intimate with him. It will be bigger than any intimacy that you can ever experience uh, in this world. That should encourage you uh, as a single person uh, to pursue godliness and to pursue a life, your life as a Christian, and to serve God wherever he has placed you, which is what the cross teaches us um, to do. One of the things that I wish people told me that Paul tells us, guys, is that singleness is better and you can serve more when you're single uh, and to use the, the most of those opportunities. Uh, because once you get married, things change. <laughs> Amen. Suddenly your time is not your own. Uh, your finances are not your own. My wife says what's, what's mine is hers. What's hers is hers <laughs> when it comes to finances. So I work and then she gets the, the care. She controls what happens. I don't have any say. Um, my son seems to think uh, that she also owns my time. Uh, even my most sacred moment, you know, I... This is too much information, by the way, that I, I wish somebody would have told me uh, that um, I'll be preoccupied with these things, that a little two-year-old will be invading my space. Even my most sacred place in the bathroom while I'm reading <laughs> that air freshener, trying to decipher the Portuguese on the air freshener, um, doing transactions, serious transactions. <laughs> too much information, I warned you comes up to me with cute eyes, uh, cold hands, touches me, ba, 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 I need to make a wee. <laughs> so I must sacrifice myself, I must get off, and then you must make a wee. Nobody told me that uh, that's what it means to be married and have kids. Um, your time, your life is not your own. Uh, you shared with other people, meaning that you cannot... Uh, serve God, uh, particularly in ministry, uh, in the way that a single person can. And so if you are single, Paul calls you to remember the cross, that at the cross, God saved us, 
uh, therefore we ought to serve one another. Uh, in fact, in the later chapters, he says uh, to everyone, this should be our way of life. This should be our thinking. Uh, so what have we discovered this morning? Uh, that unlike our culture, the Christian faith elevates, the Christian story rather, elevates sex to a high uh, standard. But it never makes it the ultimate thing. It never does. And so you and I should find courage to live for God wherever he's placed us, whether we're married or single, uh, to serve each other and to serve his church uh, through uh, our marriages. Come to the Lord's Supper. We remember that much as God um, elevates the standard of sex, uh, you and I don't always do that. We don't always uh, put it in the place where God has placed us because we are broken people. We are sinners and sinners by nature. Uh, but the Bible calls us to always run to that cross, uh, to always cling to that cross for our forgiveness and for a fresh start. Uh, that today you can say, man, I, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I haven't done what God has called me to do. I haven't behaved towards my wife, my spouse in the way that I should. I haven't behaved uh, as a single person in the way that I should. Uh, but there's much grace for people like you and me at the cross. Let's pray as Martin leads us. Father, thank you for that cross. Uh, thank you that it is our way into a relationship with you, uh, but it is also a model for life. Uh, Lord, as we do life in this broken, over-sexualized world uh, that is twisted, I pray that you may reshape our minds uh, so that we would live countercultural lives. I pray that your spirit would enable us uh, to fight against temptation uh, and the urge to, to think that sex is just about us, uh, but to think of it uh, as a service to others, uh, that we would keep it as pure as you have kept it uh, through your help and by your spirit. Th through Christ's name we ask. Amen. Let's remain in an attitude of prayer. Let's spend a few minutes reflecting on God's word because this morning each and every one of us here are sinners in all kinds of different ways but we've all sinned when it comes to sex and so it's so good that we have the Lord's table